Hello, and thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with my colleague, Dr. Susanna Greer. In this episode, you're going to hear from Christina Dealey Conright. She's an associate professor and clinical exercise physiologist at City of Hope National Medical Center in Los Angeles. Her ACS-funded work is focused on a trial involving Latina breast cancer survivors. She spoke with you, Susanna. What did you think? Hey, Joe. I, I thought Christina was great. I, I think you guys are going to love hearing about Christina's work, her motivation for it. She's going to tell us a little bit about why Latina breast cancer patients and survivors are a particularly high-risk group um, for things like obesity and type 2 diabetes. And then, so that's kind of the bad news. <laughs> the great news is she and her team have developed a, a really interesting intervention um, that is ongoing. She'll explain that to us and give us some early data. And um, it, it just made me feel really excited about what she's doing and hopeful. And also she's given some thoughts to how we might more broadly disseminate things like this intervention to a, a patient population all over the world, not just in LA where Christina is. So let's listen. Okay, Susanna, thanks. Let's get to it. Good morning, Christina. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I am fantastic. And I am so psyched to learn more about what you're doing. I um, This is a challenging space you're in. I've I looked a little bit into your research, and I know that um, the numbers that the ACS provides is that approximately 40,000 women in the United States will die from breast cancer, and we know that breast cancer is a leading cause of cancer death among Latina women in the United States. So this is a, a hugely challenging area. Absolutely, yes. And so I'm so excited to be able to tell you more about this work and to have the opportunity to even do this work thanks to the funding provided by the American Cancer Society. All right. Well, let's jump into it. One of the things that I read in preparation of talking to you is that uh, there's, a, there's a big difference in mortality rates among obese women when we think about breast cancer and those of non-obese women. So today we're going to spend some time talking about comorbidities. Um, so maybe can you just, before we even start, can you level set with this a little bit and help us to understand what does comorbidities actually mean in terms of your research? Sure, absolutely. So the, the term comorbidity refers to the simultaneous presence of two or more chronic diseases. And common chronic diseases or examples of those include obesity, also diabetes, cardiovascular disease, those are the cancer. Um, so when you have more than one of those or two or more, as I mentioned, that are occurring at the same time, um, then that is obviously a has a great impact on mortality and also increases the risk of developing additional chronic diseases. Okay, so it sounds like these more comorbidities are really important because of this impact that they have on mortality. So why then have you kind of gone one step further and focused on comorbidities specifically in Latina breast cancer survivors? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so Latinas uh, represent a high-risk group of individuals at risk for comorbid conditions. Um, that is purely based on epidemiologic data to show that minority groups, not just Latinas, but also African-American women, um, experience a higher number of comorbid conditions when compared to aged-matched Caucasian counterparts. So given this higher risk of being diagnosed with comorbid conditions, combined with having a history of been diagnosed with breast cancer places these women at, at a greater risk for develop, developing additional comorbid conditions and even possibly breast cancer recurrence. And that is really what was um, caused us to look closer into this population. Okay, so that greater risk is a real challenge. So tell us, what does that mean? What are some of these common comorbidities then? You listed a few, but maybe we could dive down a little bit deeper into that and specifically for Latina breast cancer survivors. Sure, sure. Well, again, a lot comes from obesity um, and in particular type 2 diabetes um, and even prior to that insulin resistance where the body is not able to use insulin properly, which insulin helps us regulate glucose. Glucose comes from the foods that we eat. So if we're not able to properly regulate our glucose and our insulin, that then leads can lead to type 2 diabetes um, in hand or either simultaneously or even separately, then cardiovascular disease can be a result um, as well from obesity and from diabetes. Um, So those are the three main ones, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Um, And when left untreated, they can get worse. They can cause one another to get worse. If one person only has obesity um, but it, it is not being treated or it's not, a normal body weight is not achieved, then of course that's going to lead to cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes and could ultimately also be one of the risk factors for cancer, as we know, specifically breast cancer. Um, So we have focused in, again, on this population uh, because of the higher prevalence of these comorbid conditions. Now, we think that the higher prevalence may be related to um, higher levels of physical inactivity, poor dietary habits, um, perhaps family history, um, different types of food practices that might be different than others. Um, so there could be a number of reasons that are contributing to those comorbid conditions. But it's primarily type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease that are really the big problem there with this within this population. All right. So to kind of dive into thinking about obesity and type 2 diabetes, we're kind of dancing around your specific research area which is around uh, kind of metabolism. And I think specifically, well, metabolism isn't going the way it should. So Mm -hmm. metabolic dysregulation is one of the things that you think about specifically in this uh, Latina population of breast cancer survivors. So what is that? What does that mean? What is metabolic dysregulation? Yeah, so we, we sort of coined that term specific to this grant, obviously, is a term that existed before. But we utilized it for this particular project and defined it in a way that was relevant towards this population and towards this project. So it includes or encompasses three components, metabolic syndrome, which I'll discuss shortly, insulin resistance, and visceral adiposity. Uh, So metabolic syndrome is a syndrome of five components, uh, in essence, that are unhealthy. When an individual has these five components that are unregulated or dysregulated, then they have metabolic syndrome, and that increases the risk of, again, diabetes and heart disease. So these components include high blood pressure, uh, high waist circumference, 
low levels of HDL, which is a good cholesterol, high levels of blood glucose, and then high levels of triglycerides. So it's a clinical measure that's often used to assess whether or not one is going to develop heart disease or diabetes. So that's one component of the metabolic dysregulation. Um, then we added in insulin resistance, uh, which is, in essence is implied in the term metabolic syndrome, but it's not a specific defined clinical measure. So we wanted to make sure we were including that as well. Um, so that's simply looking at uh, how well the body is using insulin and glucose. And of course, there's specific tests to measure that. And then lastly, to sort of fill out the umbrella there to give a greater picture of the full metabolic sort of profile of one is visceral adiposity, um, and that's the that's in essence a measure of the fat tissue that's around the vital organs in the abdominal area. And there's higher levels of adiposity around the visceral organs. It of course places individuals at greater risk for these comorbid conditions that we're mentioning. So we wanted to uh, put all, pull all these together and look at, uh, study them in this population to give us a more comprehensive view of metabolic health and metabolic dysregulation. Okay, so you're looking then, if I understood what you said, at Latina breast cancer survivors, and you're asking questions about metabolic dysregulation, which you said has really three kind of overarching components. So this metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and then the visceral adiposity. So, mm-hmm. all right, we're all, are we all together? Am I good now? Yes. Yes, that's great. <laughs> okay. So why then is this metabolic dysregulation, why does this seem to be a challenge for some of these Latina breast cancer survivors? Why, why would you, why specific, specifically focus on this population? Yeah, I mean, I think the the issue goes back to given that they have a higher prevalence of these comorbid conditions, these persist and get worse after diagnosis and after treatment, um, placing them at at an even more vulnerable uh, outcome at the end of their breast cancer treatments. So there's been a number of literature to show that women often gain weight during breast cancer treatment. They become physically inactive if they're not already, um, become even more sedentary. Glucose glucose profiles become worse. Um, We had some early work that I did when I was a postdoc that showed that women who did not have metabolic syndrome actually developed it during the course of chemotherapy for breast cancer. So we just, it's sort of an insult to injury specific to this population given that they already have a higher prevalence of these comorbid conditions then go through breast cancer and breast cancer treatments and these conditions often become worse. So because of that vulnerable state and a high need to address those comorbid conditions, we thought it was a great population to be able to study. Yeah, this is, this is really tough. So you're, you're already thinking about a patient who is struggling through breast cancer, through those treatments, through that survivorship, and in that process um, may, because of this metabolic dysregulation, have additional problems related to cardiovascular mm-hmm. fitness. And um, so this is, a, this is a challenging space for a patient to be in. So from what I know about what you've done, you've developed a really interesting intervention that is tailored mm-hmm. to what I, I think you've really nicely explained is a very high needs population. So can you tell us a little bit about this, about this intervention? 
Sure, absolutely. So we, we used some preliminary studies to really figure out what some next steps should be in order to target this population or what might be applicable. So, so briefly with that preliminary study, um, while it wasn't targeting uh, Latina breast cancer survivors specifically, we had more than half of our patient population who enrolled in a 16-week supervised exercise intervention aimed at targeting metabolic syndrome. And it was a successful intervention. The metabolic syndrome components were alleviated, um, and there was high adherence, um, both for the Latinas and the non-Latina population. So we thought, what are some interesting next steps here that could specifically focus in on this minority population? So we designed a three-phase intervention. The first phase is still a supervised clinic-based intervention where the patients come here to our exercise research lab. They get one-on-one -on -one supervised training three times a week for 16 weeks. It includes both aerobic and resistance exercise at moderate to vigorous intensity. And we included that phase not to simply repeat what we had done in the past, but because the patients liked it. And they learned a lot. They gained an appreciation of exercise. Um, we learned from the Latina patients in our previous trial that many of them had never exercised in their lifetime, um, never lifted weights, never been on a treadmill. So they really enjoyed and appreciated the supervised clinical component. Despite what we know about transportation barriers and things like this, um, that's a whole other conversation, they really enjoyed that component. So we thought, let's start with that as our phase one. But then what do we do next? So for phase two, to make it more applicable and more um, disseminable for the population is we decided to take those same patients, but then in essence put them into a more free living situation where they get to exercise at a YMCA of their choice. Um, there are over 26 YMCA locations in the greater Los Angeles area, so that helped for us to decide which uh, community or, or public gym facility to partner with. So we wanted, mm -hmm. we wanted a facility where there was going to be a number of locations for patients to choose from. So they select their YMCA, but we still give them an exercise program that we design for them based on mm -hmm. their fitness and their, their capabilities. But it's not one-on-one. -on -one. So they go on their own when they can, um, and they do this program that we provide them. We also wanted to encourage family involvement, um, which is a strong cultural value of the Latina population. So we are providing them with family YMCA memberships. Mm -hmm. um, we're not programming the exercise for their family, um, but they can also have utilization of the facilities as well. So that second phase is also 16 weeks. And then the third phase is simply a follow-up. So we remove the benefit of giving them a free membership to the YMCA. We do not give them an exercise program. And instead we say, you know, keep doing what you want to do, and we're just going to observe. And so we're, we're, during that phase, we're simply tracking physical activity and, um, but not giving them any resources. So we see this as sort of a community to clinic type of a trans, or excuse me, I'm sorry, reverse that, a clinic to community-based intervention where they're starting with us in the clinic. They're going to learn the exercise. They're going to, in essence, gain benefits from that very structured clinic exercise that a lot of exercise physiologists like myself like to prescribe, but then translate that into the community by having them go to a YMCA, where they're then accountable for picking their location, going when they can, fitting it into their schedule. We're still going to be involved and check in on them weekly and see how they're doing, but we're not there with them physically every time. And then, of course, the third phase is pulling out all resources and simply mm -hmm. observing them. So in total, it's, it's three four-month phases. So it's, in essence, a 12-month study duration. 
All right. Wow, that's it's really interesting. So if we can put it all together, your you and your group have uh, identified Latina breast cancer patients and survivors as being a really high risk group um, when we think around obesity and type 2 diabetes. And then you described us metabolic syndrome and dysregulation and how this specifically impacts this group. And then you've shared with us a really cool um, study that you've put together in phases to help to intervene in the development of this metabolic dysregulation. So is there any preliminary data that you could share with us? Do you have any insights that you could share on the podcast? What, what have you learned so far, or is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell. Um, what we found so far as we're going along in recruiting is that um, the patients are very excited about the phase two component. They're very excited to come to us to exercise, um, but they're even perhaps even more excited to be able to then phase out into this YMCA community type of a program. Um, because I think what often happens, as we know, is when patients enroll in a clinical trial, even if it's simply exercise, they are part of that intervention, and then there's always the what's next step. And so this gives us an opportunity to say, okay, you've spent some time with us. We've gotten to know you. You Hopefully you can gain an appreciation of exercise. Now let's take this a next step further. So this provides them with that opportunity. And I think just so far anecdotally, they, patients seem very excited about that phase um, and see it as, as, as a great option to continue and then also give them an opportunity to learn about exercising at a community facility, which from our previous study, none of them have ever done. Um, mm -hmm. They hadn't joined community, either 24-hour fitness or any of those other types of commercial gyms that just weren't accustomed to joining those types of facilities. So this will also give them an opportunity to learn more about that and sort of navigating through the barriers of that, that we may know about of going to a public gym and exercising. Sure. So it's a it's a really fantastic approach. And I I'm with you. It's really exciting that your participants seem keen to move to the kind of weaning off phase of perhaps that one on one interaction, but something that they could maintain and perhaps share with others. So maybe we'll just have to do a podcast 2.0 and, and loop back right. with you in six months or a year. Uh, you know, one of the things that you just mentioned made me think about the fact that I, I don't read a ton about health behavior kind of studies with Latina, especially mm -hmm. in this breast cancer population. So I'm especially excited um, and motivated about your work. But I wonder if you might have an idea of why that might be the case. Why, why haven't we seen this population as one of focus? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this falls in line with sort of the general national trend that minorities are underrepresented in, in many facets of research and clinical research and clinical trials in particular. You know, I, th I think a lot of it is is logistic and demographic related. Um, here in Los Angeles, we have we have access to these patients, and I think that's a huge component um, when we look around the country at just where perhaps cancer centers are located or where certain universities are located. So I do think that that 
you know, I have to say is just a resource in my lap. Um, so it would behoove me to not take advantage of the opportunity to work and study this population. But that's one component, um, having access to patients of, of, of this minority background um, and perhaps even other co-investigators and colleagues. I mean, that's one thing that we have a plethora of, of here in California are investigators who study minority patients, cancer health disparities, minority health, et cetera, um, just based off of access to minority populations. Um, another area that might be a barrier to why these patients have been underrepresented um, could also be resources um, that institutions may or may not have. Um, but I do think that the biggest one from my perspective is what populations people have access to. And then oftentimes, as, as we all know, when we're trying to design studies and get them funded, we, we need numbers. Um, so I have colleagues across the country who also study Latina breast cancer survivors who are in um, you know, very heavily populated minority mm -hmm. cities um, that make it make it possible for us to do this type of work. Um, so I think, too, that um, there are some unique training programs that are out there. I think it's great that American Cancer Society has a health disparity focus for some of their funding mechanisms. Um, I know NCI does as well. So I think also as, as we start to train more investigators in this area, then we're in essence going to be building more of a pipeline for researchers to continue to grow and build this area out as well. You, you know, you brought up a, a really, I think, interesting and challenging space, and that is that you're right. You are, in a way, surrounded by an enormity of resources, the population, your collaborators, you know, everything's kind of in your favor. So I, I'm what, and yet it's still challenging, <laughs> research is hard. <laughs> so I'm wondering what about the Latina breast cancer patient and survivor who is not in California, who is somewhere mm -hmm. where they aren't surrounded by these kinds of resources. Do you think that what you're doing is something that we could use uh, to reach those folks and those researchers who maybe don't have the same resources that, that you do? So how could we expand this program? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, and that's a that's an amazing point. Given that we've actually had patients find us and contact us through either clinicaltrials.gov or maybe they came across a paper somehow, or a friend of a friend, and has said, "I don't live there, or I'm I'm nowhere near a cancer center that's doing this type of work. What can I do?" Um, and I actually will just take some time to provide them with some type of exercise feedback to the best I can. Not obviously mm -hmm. not knowing their medical history and things like that. And I think this. This is, I think your question is a, is a huge question, not even simply for Latina breast cancer survivors. I think it's for all cancer survivors. You know, yeah. how do we how do we start to promote exercise and healthy behaviors across the board? And I think that you know myself and and many 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 other colleagues in this area are trying to study and find ways that we can do this. I think for this particular study, I think at the end, what I'd like to see is simply that the the because there's so much, there's so, and I think there was even a recent paper over the summer. There's a, a strong body of work that shows clinic-supervised exercise interventions may be superior to home-based and community-based exercise. And and the reason would be clear. You know, patients like to come. They get one-on-one -on -one training. They, they get to come to the clinic. The resources are provided. Of course, they're going to see great benefits on fitness and metabolic syndrome and things like that. 
But it, it can't stop there. And so we're, I'm really hoping that with a study like this, even though there's a cost associated to this with the YMCA membership, that we can demonstrate that this type of a model, maybe it starts in community cancer clinics and then can be hopefully maybe discounted gym memberships can be provided or um, we integrate other types of cancer support communities out there that are in the community and try to use another model that's more cost effective. So I think this is really just a launching point to take sort of a clinic to community-based model, demonstrate that it's going to work, which I hope it does once it's all said and done, and then start to find unique ways that we can really start to disseminate this and partner with perhaps even community clinics that other cancer centers have, because I know a number of them are, are growing beyond their main home institution and really getting out into the community and starting to partner with not just their own institutes, community clinics, but other organizations to start to develop a pipeline so we can disseminate exercise. Um, but to directly answer your question, if somebody were to call me and say, I'm not in the LA area, what can I do? Then I'm always happy to talk to people by phone <laughs> and provide them with free exercise advice. That's my immediate solution that doesn't require grant funding and <laughs> reinventing any wheel. Well, your immediate solution is very generous, but it it does sound like it's scalable, right? I mean, it sounds like if you think about this triangle where the patient is at one point and your clinic or a clinic is at another, and then I've never thought about it this way, but the community is a pivotal part of that triangle. So they would be the third you know, intersection in that triangle. And in this case, you can think about gems and places that we potentially all could have access to um, that perhaps the, the weight may fall more heavily on disseminating information to the patient and to the community so that this is scalable for folks who don't live near you mm -hmm. or, or near a clinic. So that's super exciting. So mm -hmm. we'll stay tuned. We'll stay tuned. <laughs> Great. All right. So all scientists have something that they're like, if they could put it on a billboard, something they're super excited about. Is there something that is, you know, what you think about when you wake up in the morning or keeps you up at night? We'd love some inside juice. Can you share with us anything that's super cool right now and what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think one of the, so this is, this is a great study that is focusing on and essentially survivorship, um, but we're also excited to really tap into patients that are also of the minority background, but that have more advanced stages of disease and starting to actually intervene earlier on. So we've been designing additional studies in more of what we call the prehabilitation space, which is before surgery, and then also during treatment as well. Um, so, you know, like I mentioned, I'm very excited about this current study, and I think it's going to show a lot, um, but we know that there can be some pretty strong, profound benefits of exercise even earlier on. And if we're tapping into a population here that's already sedentary, if we can start intervening early on, this population can also see some great benefits. So that's where we're really trying to move into is our next steps as well when we're starting to think of, of other studies that we're looking at, seeking funding for, and also seeking for ways that we can be more innovative to have a greater impact on patients as well. That's really where we're excited to move into is, is that earlier on trajectory where we can start to expose patients, especially minority patients, to exercise as soon as possible. <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like you are, are doing some pretty fantastic things, so we'll be excited to see what's next. Before I let you go, I'd, I'd really like to know how ACS has impacted your career. 
Oh gosh, in so many ways, in so many ways. Um, I think the the as as a as a professor and as a as a young investigator, when I was applying for this award, it I was awarded this at a time frame at a time point where, as we know, the typical promotion process comes around. Um, so the timing of it was fantastic. But even just the ability to conduct this project, I think often as investigators, when you when you write a proposal, but then you resubmit and you you invest so much time and energy in it that you at some point just want to really do the science. So to be able to have the opportunity to conduct the study is amazing outside of simply, of course, tenure promotion and things like that. Um, also, it's given me an opportunity to get to know um, individuals at the American Can Cancer Society from the perspective of the staff and also getting involved in grant reviewing and things like that. Also getting to know the local and regional chapters of the American Cancer Society and getting involved um, with the organization in that way, delivering guest talks, doing other types of interviews with local resources here in California has been pretty amazing and has been provided really a launch pad for me to share my research, not just locally here in California, but also nationally as well. So it's been an amazing opportunity and I'm very, very thankful. You know, your, your answer is so interesting to me because some of the things you said that this funding that the ACS had helped you to accomplish were things like timing and the ability to accomplish the research and opportunity. And I have a feeling that's the exact same way that the individuals who are participating in your study feel that you're giving mm -hmm. them, you know, just the right time. You're coming along at a place where they have a real need and giving them some training, some, some ability and some opportunity to positively impact their disease. So I think as grateful as you feel for the ACS, I imagine these patients are even more grateful for you. So thank you for all you do. That's a great point. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. Last question, Christina. A lot of our listeners are either cancer patients or people who care about them. Is there a specific message that you'd like to share with these listeners? Yeah, I think I think the important message is regardless of resources and barriers, trying to fit in a little bit of exercise every day can go a long way. And there's a lot of research now that's showing that a little is better than none. Um, so even on the hardest day when one might be the most tired, not really be, feel like doing anything, um, you know, my message would be to just try to do something, even if it's two minutes because <laughs> something is going to be better than none. And it, it's, we're starting to see that it's all adding up to some health benefits. So that's the, that's the best advice I can give is just start to do a little bit of exercise every day. <laughs> that's a great message, Christina, because I think a lot of our cancer patients and survivors um, oftentimes can have um, bad days. And I, lo I love your message that even on a really bad day, if you can just do a little, um, it's it's going to help. And I think that's an mm -hmm. incredibly up uplifting message to share. So thank you. Mm -hmm. and, Absolutely. You know, best of luck in all you're doing. We're grateful for you and your team. And we'll look forward to um, to hearing from you soon. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Christina. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.